Welcome. Today we're talking about one of the most confusing and contentious issues in free market economics, the question of fractional reserve banking. And more broadly, I want to use this as an illustration of how we can confront questions where we don't necessarily have specific specialized knowledge. In our lives, we always have to deal with areas, whether it's something like public health and we don't have a medical background or climate and energy where we don't have a scientific background. We have to be able to judge, assess different arguments, look at their methodology and come to conclusions of our own. And so the way we're going to approach the question of fractional reserve banking is, first of all, by trying to get clear on our definitions, what it is, what it isn't. We're going to look at some of the arguments from free market thinkers for and against this particular practice. And of course, another very useful technique when you're trying to get grips on a difficult subject is to talk to somebody who's a much greater expert than you yourself are. And that's why today I'm joined by my friend Alejandro. How are you doing, Alejandro? Fine. Thank you, Nicholas. Great to be here. Good. Good to, good to see you. So let's begin with the basics. Can you tell us uh, uh, using very clear, simple language, simple enough that even a musician can understand it. What exactly is fractional reserve banking and how does it work? So I would say that there are two senses of the word when one says that there is a fractional reserve banking. And one is a more descriptive uh, way of saying in which banking sector works. And the other one is more normative, trying to describe how uh, the, a banking sector should work. Now, let me explain the first one, which I think it's it's very simple. It basically, according to uh, Investopedia, which I think it may, gives a good definition about this, is a system in which only a fraction of bank deposits are required to be available for withdrawal. So let's say that you, Nicholas, go to the bank and deposit $100. and then the bank grabs the, those $100 and it commits itself to keep a certain fraction of this in its vaults. That means that, let's say, that the fractional reserve is at 10% or that the fraction that the bank reserves is 10%, then out of the $100 that you gave them, the bank commits itself to keep 10% uh, on, in its vaults. Now, the more normative sense uh, of the word is what when regulations establish that there should be a certain coefficient or a certain proportion of this in the sector or in in the banks because uh, they want the banks to have certain liquid assets so that whenever you go to the bank, then uh, the, the bank doesn't say, "Oh my God, I, I miss I miss all these deposits. I, the, all of them are are deposited at, at the." Uh, loans or, or or their assets. So certain regulations require banks to have at least certain amount of the deposits in 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 the vault. Um, now you will tell the most common uh, of this is basically a reserve requirement, which is basically means that you will keep a, a certain proportion either in your vault or deposited at the central bank, although. It has been swiftly changing. This has been swiftly changing over the last years, where basically, uh, instead of requiring banks to keep uh, a certain proportion of their deposits by law, they basically are being enticed or pay, being paid to keep a certain amount of their money in either the central bank or their or, or the or their vaults. 
And am I correct? And uh, I read somewhere that since uh, I think it was March of 2020, the Federal Reserve reduced the reserve requirement to zero. And that's where you mentioned they they, they offer enticements, they offer a certain interest to banks that keep some uh, uh, a certain a certain reserve. So, it, it, so now when the Federal Reserve was first created in in 1913, I think the reserve requirement it was somewhere in the eight to 13 percent range, depending on the size of the bank and things like that. So, so it, the the requirement in the United States now is zero. Technically, is that correct? Yes, uh, that's my understanding. And uh, even though they have been changing this for a while, it's common that it's very close to zero over the last uh, decades. And so, one major source of confusion for me is it theoretically possible for a bank to lend out more than a hundred percent of what it has on deposit? Oh, definitely. And and actually, that's. I think you wanted to talk a bit more about criticisms, but sometimes uh, fractional reserve banking is uh, confused with the way in which a bank is, operates. And I think that's a really bad way of conceiving how a banking operates. The, it's not true that whenever you deposit $100 in the bank, then the bank is able to lend some, uh, some of these deposits out to some other people as loans. Actually, what is true is that a bank can uh, issue debt, and some of this debt usually are deposits. So, it's the bank doesn't need someone to go to to the to make a deposit and therefore make a loan. A bank can actually say, "Okay, Nicholas, I want you to to lend you a million dollars, and now you have an account with me that is for a million dollars." It doesn't need someone to come and deposit a million dollars for you. What one of the benefits of having deposits is that, that they're stable. They you, you can manage them. It it's you don't have sudden withdrawals, sudden um, issues. It, they're they're uh, relatively cheap, and therefore many banks have most of their liabilities set up set up as deposits. And uh, but it shouldn't be confused that a bank has to have deposits to lend out money. So since uh, fraction reserve banking seems to be the default, it's the used by all the, all the banks around the world, let's begin, first of all, with the arguments in favor of the practice. And indeed, there, are, there have been a lot of free market thinkers in favor of so-called free banking, people like George Selgin, Larry White. Uh, I've also seen some talks by Yaron Brook where he basically says, yes, fractional reserve banking, there's some risk, there's some instability, but basically the benefits outweigh the cost. So can you talk a little bit and try as much as possible to steel man the free market arguments in favor of fractional reserve banking? Well, I would say that the most salient or the most um, used argument in favor of that is that one needs credit to, to, to create a supply of money that is not difficult to realize itself. And, and with that, I mean that if you would, for instance, use gold or use uh, no, uh, Federal Reserve notes uh, or that little paper that you hold all the time, it would be extremely costly, extremely difficult to make any transaction. Like imagine yourself trying to buy something from Amazon. It would be extremely difficult, even if you would make the, the transactions digitally and that some banks exchange to, to each other uh, some, some notes uh, at the end of the day. It would be real difficult to make it, and it would be real expensive. If you would, if you would set yourself in a 
in, in that kind of world, you, you would be arguably, I mean, the, the, the world in the of a hundred percent of fractional reserve banking, that is a world where there is no fractional reserve banking, then it would be extremely expensive to operate in it. Like imagine yourself trying to make any single transaction uh, using just uh, gold or any other uh, set of money. Uh, and therefore, you can use credit, solvent credit, really useful credit from, from banks via IOUs or other types of, of liabilities that they issue. And then you can uh, settle your payments or any debt that you have with it. You won't need any reliance on on, on any uh, hard currency to, to do it. Um, so I, I would say that's basically the main argument for uh, the the... the not having a fully fractional reserve banking. And uh, the other argument that I've heard from the, the, the argument that Selgin makes, I see he actually lays it out and says, if you had like a real free banking system where some banks had 100% reserve and some banks had fractional reserve, he thinks that most people would rationally choose fractional reserve banking. Why? Because it, rather than uh, having to pay uh, a fee to deposit their money in a bank, they actually get to earn interest. And of course, everybody wants to earn interest on the money that they've deposited. So his idea, and in, in a moment, I'll talk about uh, Riesman's sort of disagreement with that, but his idea is that most people would rationally accept some of the risks if they have the benefit of getting a little bit of interest on their money. So what do, what do you think of that argument? Well, I think it's it's a good argument. Although, to be honest, I I, I heard the argument set up otherwise that people that argue for 100% reserve requirements say that the 100% requirements uh banks would be winning over the uh the, the banks that have no no requirements because it's safer and and better in their view yeah, well, and exa that's exactly the point that George Reisman makes. So my understanding of his position is uh, he, he's against the practice of fractional reserve banking. He doesn't think it should be illegal necessarily, but he thinks that in a free market, it would uh, die a natural death. And I think there was some discussion of that a couple of weeks ago, you know, the conversation between Jim Brown and Clive Davis that came up. But now fractional reserve banking has been strongly criticized by a lot of economists in the Austrian school who tend to associate it with the, the creation of business cycles, the creation of boom bust cycles, and all sorts of corollaries like inflation and uh, economic inequality as a result. Probably, I would say probably the strongest argument seems to be from Rothbard. So Murray Rothbard argued that it was that fractional reserve banking is a fraud, it's a scam, it should be illegal. His He represents a very, very strong position. Uh, one thing that I find interesting is that I, from some of the readings that I've done, people on both sides, both the pro and contra side, cite Mises as an authority. So I get the impression that Mises was, he had mixed feelings about the, about the practice of fractional reserve banking, or he seemed to provide some, some arguments both ways. But can, you, can we talk a little bit now about some of the criticisms, some of the really strong criticisms, uh, not just on practical grounds, but even on moral grounds, like Rothbard's criticism, saying that it's a fraud and a swindle, et cetera? Well, I would say that there are basically four arguments, four economic arguments and four legal arguments. And um, I'm not a legal expert, so I, I think... If someone wants to hear the, the legal uh, arguments in favor of 100% requirements, then he should, he should super, chat, super chat and I will tell them. But I will tell you a bit more about the economic ones because I, th those are the ones that I know better. And as you mentioned, uh, practically one of the 
major criticisms against uh, fractional reserve requirements is that they say that that encourages banks to lend more than they are able to and that in, in turn creates uh further uh increases of, and and lacks of balance in the way in which people deposit and at the same time in the way in which uh banks lend and therefore there's a mismatch and that creates a boom bust cycle which is one of the most studied parts of the of the um, um of the of the Austrian theory now uh, th there are other uh criticisms which one one of them I've already mentioned you uh, the one that of Riesman which is if there is a hundred percent people would choose it over the non hundred percent there's also the idea that the fractional reserve uh, uh is inflationary and therefore it because it increases monetary supply and therefore it uh creates more money than it should be in the economy and the the last reason that that they give is that the uh, actually uh the fractional reserve banking doesn't add up to anything because transactions would already be done even if all money were done this in in the in in a in a non-fractional reserve banking sector um now you mentioned the the moral uh argument and I think that the, without talking about the legal issues, I would say that in essence, they people like Rothbard see something wrong in the whole idea of promising something uh, while you don't have it at the same time. Like if you, if I promise you, Nicholas, that I will pay you a hundred dollars, but I don't stipulate the time, they say, "Oh, that's fraud. Oh, that's 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 a scam." And and I think that a lot of the of the arguments of Rothbard are are going to that uh, to to that point. Now, uh, before we get to your your own point of view, one argument that I've come across in a lot of the free banking literature, like Selgin, for example, is they say, well, look, in the nineteenth century, in Canada and Scotland, before they had central banks, you know, before they had the Bank of Canada and whatever, uh, before they had central banks monkeying around with interest rates and with uh, the, the, the supply of money, they did have a kind of fractional reserve system, which for the most part worked really well. There were you know, minimal disruptions, minimum, minimum booms and busts, and there weren't any bank runs or anything like that. So in, 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 in empirical terms, it seemed to work then in the 19th century. And uh, what I like about that argument is it actually points to a historical reality. And so the conclusions that, that Selgin and others draw from this is if we didn't have the central banks, if we didn't have, say, the Federal Reserve uh, tinkering around with interest rates and with the supply of money, then fractional reserve banking would work fine. And the the, the uh, phrase that Selgin uses that I quite like is we should we should keep the fractional reserve baby, but throw out the central bank bank bathwater, which I, I kind of like. So do, do you think there's any validity or legitimacy to that argument? The, the argument that in the past it worked and therefore- and In the it past should... it worked and that what, what, what's making it not work is the presence of the central banks specifically. Oh, definitely. And I would say that the breaking of the gold standard over the last 100 years, it's also a big explanatory factor. And certainly, I mean, you, you told me that you want to hear my opinion later, but just as a prelude, I, I would say that the main factor, the main thing that has been, there are real problems in the monetary system. And sometimes you could see that um, ways in which the fractions are measured 
would suggest that 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 is the cause of the problem. But I would say that there are other problems that underlie that the fractional reserve uh, banking looks so fractioned. Uh, there are the underlying underlying costs of the of the problem, and therefore, those are the fundamental problems which should be addressed. Firstly, uh, if one wants to re uh, have a sounder banking system or a monetary system than the current one, and actually, the fact that in the past uh, fractional reserve um, systems have worked without major problems, speci specifically because they had gold as a as a redeemability. Uh, factor or something that could be working as uh, a way to buy your way out of the system uh, are not already are not present anymore. So that makes the system in itself uh, riskier uh, rather than the whole feature of fractional reserves. One of the things about this topic that I find that's most bewildering to a layperson like myself is you you have some of the greatest economic minds of the past century at loggerheads over this issue. I mean, they seem to be unable to come to agreements on some of the basic principles, basic ideas. But now I'd like to ask, so what's your perspective on all of this? Which which of the arguments do you personally find most persuasive and why? Well, I, I would say that as such, I'm not persuaded at all for people that argue in favor of the 100% requirements or any kind of specific requirements. I think it's really bizarre that the same people on the Austrian side that ask for uh, and, and know that certain requirements or mandate or mandates in, in, in law create uh, certain discomfort in the economy or sometimes crisis, they ask for a certain number in in of certain types of assets in the economy, um, and I think the basic problem of that is that they don't recognize the real, um, first of all, value of credit, and also its nature. The na credit is in by its name; it's something that. Uh, it's fulfilled because you are able to um, accomplish uh, a certain demand when you compromise yourself to do it. Like, I give you credit for this or that because you did it. Credit derives its name from that. And I think that a lot of the people who argue for full reserve requirements actually are people who don't really understand the nature of credit and see it in really uh, skeptical eyes, skeptical to, to the extent that they're, they're willing to, um, to even consider that from a free market perspective. I do think, however, that there is a problem, and, and, and as, as I said, there's an, a real problem with the system. And there are big issues in the monetary, uh, from the monetary side. And the most common problem is that for instance, uh, banks uh, get deposits that are uh, at a really low maturity. Let's say that you deposit, uh, uh, you make a deposit for uh, $100 at one month. And with those $100, the bank may makes, uh, makes a loan for a mortgage of 30 years. You are having something that some will probably be called at a month and something that you have for 30 years, that's something really bizarre. But what's explaining that? 
Well, what's explaining that is that basically the system is really unprofitable. That is that basically anytime that you ask for money, it doesn't add up to anything. And every time that you try to invest something, it's really difficult for you to get something in return. And also another part of that is that central banks encourage a lot of lending and a lot of uh, behavior that wouldn't be happening if they wouldn't exist, basically because uh, banks are insured that they will have liquidity if they will need it. If banks actually knew that they won't be receiving any liquidity assistance, they would actually be way much careful with the way in which they manage their money. So it kind of a in summary or to expand on some of the points you made, if if you were to advise somebody how to fix the monetary system, you, you wouldn't start with fractional reserve banking. You would start with, say, central banks, try to get them out of the way, try to stop them from manipulating the money supply and the interest rate. What would be your sort of plan or your starting point for fix, fixing the monetary system? Well, I, I think um, that goes a bit beyond my field of expertise and I would be very cautious with anything that I say after this but I would say that essentially we need that any credit is payable in uh, hard currency in my view dollars and that would un anchor a lot of the of the credit that exists in the system and it would give us a way out if someone doesn't agree with the system the fractional reserve banking I would leave it like that. If someone wants to set up a bank with 100% requirements, be free about that. Um, if you want to compete in the free market for that, all, all yours. But I think at the same time, it would be legal and perfectly proper for a bank to exist with fractional reserves. And so you mentioned a couple of times in the discussion uh, the gold standard. So correct me if I'm wrong. The, the United States has been off the gold standard since, is it 1971? That I wouldn't say, I would say that that's even beyond like in the in 1913 uh you oh. you would say that there was a fir the first break of the gold standard in 1971 yeah. there was the last uh semi link that there existed but I wouldn't that's call that the gold standard yeah yeah uh, what do you think of returning to the gold standard what's your opinion do you think that would be a good thing a positive thing it would be amazing uh I think the the most one of the things that we're observing right now, and that is maybe very difficult to observe, uh, is that because of a lot of regulation, a lot of problems in the economy, we are observing that basically banks aren't allowed to, to lend at really profitable um, margins. And what that entails is, or what that implies, is that we don't have uh, a really... Well, uh, uh, we don't have any kind of livelihood within the economy. We're we're in a dying age of, of the economy, and if we had a gold standard, there would be a big incentive for banks and for people in the economy to revamp the system and try to persuade people to get re less regulation and to really face the costs that they're facing. Because now, with uh, easy easy ways of lending, it's very easy to get uh, easy money and as well continue the path as it is. Well, I have one more question that I want to ask, but before we get to that, let's just check in with Daniel. Do we have any comments or super chats from our viewers at this point? 
We have a super a super sticker from Jonathan. Thank you so much, and a super chat from James. Thank you. He says, if all of the reserve pa uh, parameters and conditions are fu fully disclosed, it should be a legal contract. Alejandro is great. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree, and that's that's pretty much the point that Yaron Brook makes in the the clip that I saw from the Ayn Rand Institute YouTube channel. So, final question. This is a very confusing topic for those of us who want to get a better handle on it read resources from different sides to get an understanding of both sides of the issue. What are some resources that you recommend? Books, articles, particular authors that give different perspectives on fractional reserve banking? Well, my favorite economist, especially in, in this realm, is uh, a Spanish economist called Juan Ramon Rayo. Although I think that uh, his books are not yet translated into English, he has a critique to the monetary theory of Mises. And I think he does great work explaining how Mises thinks in a real objective way. And at the same time, he provides a lot of his criticism against some of the way he conceives the monetary system. I would say that would be the uh, first way to go. And and he would, it, that, that would be um, a nice starting point if you want to, to learn about that. And other sources would be uh, Keith Winner's. Uh, um, he has a couple of essays on fractional reserve banking, and those are as well pretty good. I think uh, they're um, publishing his his blog. Okay, excellent. And um, do you, any any other final thoughts on this, or where we can learn more about some of the work that you're doing? Because you have your own YouTube channel, you do your own uh, do you do your, some of your own discussions and podcasts. If people want to find out more about your ideas, uh, not at the moment, but. Uh, or are you pub are you publishing any articles? Uh, not at the moment as well. I I, I tried to do this as well for a while, but uh, so far I'm I'm fully engaged with TDL. Okay, okay, excellent. Well, we look forward to seeing more discussions with you. Thank you very much for answering my questions on this subject. Thanks, uh, final, let's just check in one last time with Daniel. Do we have any final super chats or uh, announcements for upcoming shows today? No more Super Chats, but in about four minutes, we have the reality show on the legacy of the UK Conservative Party. Link for that is in the chat. At 7 p.m. UK time, we have the Fountainhead Book Club for ARC UK members. This session will also be live streamed to YouTube members and also a special announcement. Uh, the Briefly Objective is coming back with a new video, Why Altruism is Evil, and that's going to be at uh, Thursday at 7 p.m. UK time. I'll put the link for that also in the chat. Okay, excellent. Thank you very much, Daniel. Thank you very much, Alejandro, for sharing your economic expertise with me. I look forward to chatting with you again soon. Thanks to all our viewers and supporters. And until next time, I wish you all the best of premises.